Continuous improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbach, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 104, Continuous Improvement and Spanning Leadership with Wanda Wallace. Success requires expertise, but today's work world requires leaders to lead beyond their own areas of personal expertise. Wanda Wallace calls this spanning leadership, and she works with leaders to build their success in leading across functions and domains where they themselves have little expertise. Wanda is the author of You Can't Know It All, Leading in the Age of Deep Expertise. She joins me here at the Edges of Lean to share her insights and discuss why spanning leadership is important for lean leaders. Wanda Wallace, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite, Bella. It's really great to have you here today. And I think you have a lot of things to say that are going to be of interest to people who are working in lean and continuous improvement. Wanda, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What is it that you do today and a little bit about your career path? All right. So what I do today is fundamentally, my business is helping people have better conversations. So if you think about all the stuff that happens, even in the lean community and continuous improvement, it ultimately involves persuading people to do things in a slightly different way. It's a conversation. So that's really my core. How do we have better conversations? Now, that means I coach. That means I speak. That means I run a training programs. I do all of those pieces at about any place that's going to help people accelerate. And what I'm trying to do is to help people have the greater impact in their careers. It's not so much about advancing to the next level. It is about doing, having more impact, having a bigger footprint inside the organization and getting the organization to go where you think it should be going. So when you're talking about conversations, you're talking about conversations between managers and employees, between leaders and followers. Um, and, and I think the word between is is really important, right? It's not, it's not, it's not about a one-way communication. It's, it's no, it's between. It's about it's a yeah. conversation is a two-way. If it's not a two-way, it's called an order. And that's not a conversation. So conversation has a dialogue component, a back and forth component. Somebody once gave the metaphor is it's like you're playing tennis. You don't just want to keep hitting the ball over the net. You want it to bounce back to you and back and forth a little bit is a good game of tennis. But I think we underestimate the power of conversations between peers. And it's where I see an awful lot of people struggle with a peer that they don't see eye to eye with. But in today's world, you have to figure out how to collaborate with. And those relationships, those conversations become roadblocks to great outcomes. So and that's really critical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for saying. I think it's really critical. And I think people today are, uh, I think we all see this, are feel more divided than perhaps they have been in the past or, or perceive more reasons why they might not agree with another person. And they bring that into the workplace. And sometimes people don't agree about how to get the work done either. Right, right. right. Yeah. One of my favorite, so, I mean, I see all the time, somebody's coming to me saying, I have a problem with this individual across another team somewhere and I can't get them to do what I want them to do. And you find out what they're trying to do is tell that other person how to do their job. Well, mm. nobody's going to like that. All right. Now, you may be right in what you're trying to get them to do, but if you're doing it in a way that somebody feels they're being told, 
It's not going to go. And now we get into the world, to my world. What's the different way to have that conversation that's going to be more effective? Wanted, is this something that you've been thinking on and working on your whole life? Is there some, was there some moment in your life where you, where you said, aha, it's about conversations? About about five years ago, when I took a deeper dive into the whole purpose literature, trying to understand what that was really about and how I could help clients have a conversation around purpose, is where it really hit an aha for me that what I do is help people frame conversations of all forms. And some of those are where am I going in my career, then in all sorts of different places. So there was that, but you know, you asked earlier about the, the trajectory of my career. And I yeah. think the most important thing for everybody to understand, I interview hundreds of senior leaders in any given year. None of them have a straight career directory trajectory and me included. So I started out as a mathematics person and did a teaching degree in mathematics and decided I didn't really love education and did a PhD in psychology and then a marketing faculty member, all of which lead me to where I am today. They're all pieces of the puzzle that kind of come together to allow me to uniquely do what I do today. But you couldn't have told me at 21 or 17 mm. or 35 where I was going to end up. I couldn't tell you. It's a journey. It's a process that just unfolds with time. So in my career is no different than that. He's had many different twists and turns. And it sounds like you have taken pieces from all of those experiences and the things mm -hmm. that you've learned and, and you bring them together into your, your practice right. today. Right. And you said you said you didn't love education, but I but you're doing education. I'm doing I'm doing all education. the time. I didn't want to practice education in the formal sense of being in a school system mm -hmm. and for that matter, being in a university system. I found that working adults who were in a business trying to make things happen were my ideal candidates. But it took me a journey to get there. Like I still do education. I still believe in education fundamentally. I just don't want to do it in the formal ways. One of the things that um, that you talk about is this idea that general management is dead. And that really, um, I think, is something that a lot of people in the lean community agree with. You know, the, the way that Perhaps people are taught in business school about management, the, pay, the way that people learn to manage by watching their managers, which is the way a lot of people learn to manage, that that is not working today. Why is it not working? Okay, so to do this, let me step back and say what do I mean by general management? Because you, people may be in companies where there's a title general management, and that mm. is very different than what we mean by the term general management. So I'm not talking about titles. I'm talking about the role the roles we teach in business schools. So the notion is I teach you great leadership skills, how to have feedback conversations, how to set a strategy and vision, how to blah, 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 blah. And then I can import you into any part of any business anywhere in the world and you will be successful. All right, so anybody sitting in a continuous improvement or a lean or a technology or even marketing and sales knows that that could not be further from the truth. So if you take a senior most job, let's say CEO of any company, that person cannot just be a generalist. They have to know something about the business. They have to know something about the markets, about how the business functions. And often the kind of things we try to change, especially for your community, 
I mean, the devil is in the details. You have to get under the surface of it in order to be effective. So that sets up what I believe is a conundrum. On the one hand, we love expert leaders. It's not that they are individual contributors, as we've always described them in Mm -hmm. the HR world. They are leaders and lead large parts of organizations, but their credibility comes because of their content knowledge, their ability to say, no, 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 the problem is 15 steps down and here it is and here's how we solve it. Now, they need to come back up. They can't stay down in those details. But that's our expert leader, and they run vast organizations for their credibility as their expertise. Equally, there are times when we ask you to take on multiple areas of a business over which you have relatively little knowledge. Now, you can't be naive, but you have have relatively little knowledge. And if you think about the kind of teams that get formed to make process changes, for example, Um, You've got people who are experts in various different components who are coming together and figuring out how to talk across those um, areas and understand them. That's an area that I call spanning leadership, where you are spanning domains of knowledge. You know some, but not all of them. And the question then becomes, how do I get credibility? How do I add value? How do I get followership? How do I have the right conversations when I don't have all the depth of knowledge? And it's not one or the other. It's what proportion is needed in the role that I'm in now at this moment in time. It's a blend. Wow. One of the things that um, I've learned in my work in uh, lean product development is about the role of a chief engineer. So a chief engineer in um, a company like Toyota or, or Ford uh, is responsible for a product, right? They're responsible for delivering a new product. And in order to do that, they must lead a team of leaders from all of the other functions in order to deliver, to deliver that product. Um, some companies in really invest in the training of these chief engineer type leaders, you know, they give them those opportunities, but first of all, to develop deep expertise in one area, but then to have opportunities across the other areas so that they know enough about them, perhaps to ask the right question. But other companies I have observed don't do that. You know, they take someone who has, you know, strong technical knowledge in one, in one area, um, has leadership skills and kind of, you know, throw them into this position of, of leading that cross-functional team. And it's important to note that the people who are on the team do not report to them, right? So it's 100% an influence role. And it's very difficult for those people. So how, how how would you recommend somebody in that type of situation start to, to deal with being in that situation? So we have a leader who's leading domains of knowledge over which they know relatively little. All right. So the first yes. thing is you will need to know a little bit about it. You have you don't have to have depth, but you got to understand what are the key questions, what are the key dynamics, what are the key things that can go wrong, um, what is it that takes time of the people that are working in that area, what are their worries. If I don't know that much, then I don't know how to listen to their comments or their questions or where to guide them. The folks that I see do this really well tend to just go and ask. I mean, one of my favorite stories early is a guy who built a software technology company and did a brilliant job of doing it. It was his third one, knows nothing about programming. 
is not an engineer, is not a technology person at all. But he said, I know enough to go down and sit with my programmers for a half day and say, I'm not going to try to do your job, but tell me how you're spending your time. What's taking time? What's not working? What's going wrong? What do you wish you had? And just talk with them. It's amazing. And then if you put those pieces together, you start to see where are the roadblocks in the organization. And then you have a job. How do I remove roadblocks for the team? That is an enormously valuable manager. But first you have to do, as you said, go and see what's what's happening. Yeah. How, how do people do that now in the in the in this distributed work world where, where folks that may be in other countries, you know, in their in their kids' bedroom working? It's no it is no different. It's the curiosity to say, I don't know your world. And I'm not trying to become an expert in your world, but I need to know enough about what you do so I know how to join the dots between you and the 10 other people on this team that are going to help us be successful. It's a Zoom call. And it may not be, I'm going to spend a half day with you, but maybe I want to mm. spend an hour here and next week, another hour and a month later, another hour. And I want to come back and check my learning. I want to say, I hear from you, one, two, three. And I hear from this other group, one, two, three. And seems to me that we're consistent on one and two, but we got conflict on three. Have I understood that well? Just progressing again, that conversation. It starts with the curiosity, the questions, and then trying to join the pieces together to find where the real roadblocks are, not what's said, but where the real roadblocks are so you help find resolution. So that makes so much sense, Wanda. I, I think one of the things that is challenging in that is that when somebody and this is not all leaders, but when, when a, a leader has gotten to a certain point, they, in their career or in their organization, they often struggle to be curious. And I think that this comes from having to be right or feeling that they have to be right. So being curious means I might hear something that shakes my thinking, right? That may be different from what is right. And I may actually have to show other people I learned something. Which is which is hard for some people. And you you have this background in psychology. How do you help people like that? Okay, all right. So you have to understand why we got to the place that leaders think that they have to be right. You're right. The expectation when you are the expert and you're leading as an expert is that you are right and you're controlling the quality and the risk. And if you mess that up as an expert leader, you don't get thanked very much by the organization. So you mm -hmm. learn really quickly as an expert leader that you need to have an answer. That's your job as the expert and that you need to be right. Check. And then we put you in a fuzzy role where you are no longer the expert. And now it's not about being right. It's about controlling the direction and the strategy. So everything that has your mindset for what made you successful as that expert leader now needs to shift to the polar opposite. So instead of having the answer, you need to have the question. Instead of have being right, you need to figure out how am I enabling the team to discover the right answer. They're very different skill sets. And we don't talk to people about the transition between the two. And it's when you explain it to people, you help them see the contrast and you help them understand when am I an expert leader and when am I a spanning leader? Then suddenly eyes start to open, ideas start to emerge, and it doesn't feel so risky to say, I don't know that. Tell me more. Mm. 
Okay. And then what happens? What, what what happens when folks start to do that? When when somebody goes to uh, a new area and they start to ask those questions, they I, must be getting different kind of feedback than they than they expected. I think when you ask um, questions that say, in effect, look, I'm not an expert in your part of the world, but I need you on the team because I need your expertise. My job is to do something else. I'm not trying to take over your job. I'm trying to add value to the team. And I get clear about what I'm doing, like removing roadblocks or opening up resources or setting priorities, that those are my job. And I say that to my team. And then I say, tell me more about your world. Most people love that. Now, a year in, if you're still asking the questions you should have asked in the first month, we're going to go, mm, I'm not so mm. sure about that. And if I have to repeat to you five times, dear manager, that question, then I'm like, it's nah, wasting my time. And you have to add value as a manager. It just isn't going to be because of your content knowledge. Dozens of ways to add value, but it won't be because of your content knowledge. When you get your head straight around that, it's not so scary. And teams usually respond to it because they feel smart suddenly. Like, oh, wow, there's a manager who's interested in listening to me. And most are ready to say, hallelujah, next. Can we have more of those? Yeah, more of those. Yeah, it's scary, though. It's hard. And and it's not just the, the manager or the leader being able to have those those conversations, ask those questions with each of these these functional areas, right? It's it's being able to elicit a conversation across the functional areas so they can work together. That's right. How does that work? Well, you can do that even if you're not the leader. Let's say you've got this team and you're not the formal leader, but you're the convener of the team, a classic collaborative working models for fixing something in an organization mm-hmm. or designing a new product. You could say, look, great finance that you're here. I know we need you to keep us on track with our spend. All right. What are the questions we need to be tracking? What do you think are the biggest indicators? Where do you think we can go awry? You look at lots of these. What have you seen gone wrong? And how do we keep track of that? Anybody can ask those questions. The more you understand of it, the more you will understand how the pieces fit together and therefore, what is a feasible, most effective solution to any given problem? So in lean product development, we call those critical questions. And we and we yes. we do, we absolutely want the team to come up with those. And we also want other functions to comment on those critical questions. Yes. Because sometimes what one function thinks is a critical question is actually not a critical question because somebody else knows the answer, right? But they they haven't right. talked to each other yet. Yeah. So, but, but what that, that I think that requires again is, is a really different view of how we work in an organization because we're thinking all of the knowledge and all of the questions are coming down from the top, right? Um, That willingness and ability to trust each other on a team or in a work group enough to share what I'm worried about. And then allow somebody else to comment on it or share what they're worried about is is a whole level that of I think of trust that sometimes uh, right. you know takes a while to develop. 
Yeah, it's and I would advise people who are in that place and a little bit nervous about the trust to not just chuck that out the window and say, okay, I'll trust everybody because Mm. it doesn't always. I mean, there's lots of reasons why trust is disrupted for legitimate reasons. Uh So I would encourage you to start small, you know, pick a peer that you know reasonably well who understands those dynamics and say, look, I'm worried about this. Do you see the same thing? Am I over the top on this? Is it the same in your area? And, you know, we find out that, yeah, we both are worried about the same thing. And and if I pick three people come together to say in a meeting, look, the three of us have talked and we're really worried about X. Can we have a conversation? A, that's not so scary. It doesn't take mm-hmm. an enormous amount of trust. And it has a lot more weight in the room. You're going to get a better hearing of it because there's three of you. But you do that, what people miss is we need a lot more bilateral conversations, lots more before it all comes to the team. It doesn't all happen in the team because you can't manage the dynamics on the team to make it work out well. Do those right. you know, two by two conversations and you know, you're going to you get pretty far with that if you're smart. Yeah, and um, team time is, is precious, right? The time that... Right particularly in today's world, the time that you all spend together, you know, I think, you know, there's sort of this idea of teams being the way they do them in some of the big tech co- companies where you take a group of people and put them together in a, you know, in a big room and they, they get all the work done, but that's not the way it is. I mean, people are, are, most yeah, people teams are. are what I describe as a hub, hub and spoke model. So there is somebody who is the organizer or the quote lead of that team. Mm-hmm. And they basically divvy up the work. And then any problems or issues comes back to that lead to figure out how to resolve. And they will pull two, maybe three people together to resolve an issue. And everybody goes back out to their spokes and they don't actually work together. Like all the conversations are between the individuals and that lead, which kills the lead because they're handling everything in the team Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and get overloaded and frustrated and overwhelmed and all the collaborative, creative energy that could be created from the team doesn't happen. But that's, we divide and conquer. That's what we do 99% of the time. Wow. And that's such a, I was just thinking hub and spoke, what a great um, analogy, but, you know, because when we think of, you know, hub and spoke with airlines and it's all great um, until you actually get into that hub airport and everybody's coming together and everybody's confused and nobody knows which way to go. And then you, you know, you fly back out that's right. and that's right. it's, it's, yeah, it's, as it's, long it's really, as we're running a routine process that we pretty much know how to do a hub and spoke model is the most efficient model there is, but the moment you need to resolve chaos or deal with greater complexity or be creative and come up with a fundamentally different solution, a hub and spoke won't serve you well. So a leader then perhaps, a leader convener, whatever you call this person, should be saying to the team, I want you to talk to each other when we're not together as a team. Yeah, just you know, make, it, make it clear. Yeah, you can say that. Expectation. Yeah. But the best leaders, when somebody brings a problem to them in the center and the leader knows it involves another person on the team, the best leader will say, have you talked to this other person first? And they will send that person off to have the bilateral conversation before they come back. So they sort of constantly forcing people to go out and work with each other before they bring the problems to the leaders. 
And it's such a temptation then for that leader then to 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 work in the old way right? and say, well, you know, you and me will solve this problem. But of course, the other person who's involved will not be able to contribute and uh, may not be happy with the solution. Uh, the solution may not work because they don't have that work. person's input. It yeah. plays to our belief about what our value is as a leader. If I carry the belief that my job is to have the answer and to be able to know where what direction to go in to set the strategy, then every time somebody brings a problem, I need to be the hero who answers the problem. And the moment you do that, you are not enabling the team to solve the problems. You're becoming the bottleneck. And so Wanda, what that brings to mind for me then is the leader then needs to have a very clear understanding with their own manager, with their own leader about what their role is. Because I think that one of the reasons that people feel they have to solve the problems themselves is because they believe that's what their boss is expecting. Yeah. Most bosses want to know you're making progress, that you've got the Mm -hmm. goal, you understand what it means, you're on it, and you're making progress. That's what they want to know. And they want to know that on a pretty regular basis. Most of them don't necessarily care how you get it done. Right. But you do need to come back and say, we've moved this, we've done this, here's where the progress is, here's the roadblock. Can I talk to you about who else can help us? It's... um, it's you need that information fed up. And in the absence of information, then the leader will start digging in and you've got trouble. Wanda, can we talk a little bit more about conversations? Because this is so this is so important what you're talking about. And conversations between people. What are some of the hallmarks of having a good conversation? Um, the first step, I mean, everybody in my field says this, but I can't underestimate how mm. important it is. The first step is to understand what it is you are really thinking and feeling. So, yourself, your your own, own thinking, your own thoughts. What am opinions. I really looking for? And what kind of an outcome am I looking for? I'm going to have a conversation, but what do I really want to happen as a result of it? Most of the times when I sit down with somebody to help them think through conversation, what they want is for that other person to be different. Mm. And that is not a good outcome because it's not likely to happen. So let's back up from that. What would you like them to do differently? And you find that it's often, when you work on it, it's often a very small thing. And so now we have to understand how are you actually feeling about this? And then you have to understand what stories you're telling yourself about that other person. So if it's somebody I've been working with for a while and there's conflict and tension, I've made up a whole thing in my head about why they do it and what it's about and how incompetent they are or whatever else. And I have to put that on pause in my brain and say, wait, where's the evidence? And is there an alternative interpretation? So maybe that person is scared. Maybe that person is missing a skill. Maybe that person is being pressed by their manager to do things in a particular way. Many plausible reasons why somebody is doing that. So that's the next piece. So what do I really want as an outcome? How am I really feeling about it? What stories am I telling myself? And then what are the other alternatives? And then you're ready to frame a conversation because now you have yourself in a more open mindset to hear data in a different way. So I can now go to somebody and say, tell me your perspective. But instead of listening for confirmatory evidence, I'm listening for what might be out there. A lot of times... 
when when people talk about having a good conversation, they talk about listening. But what you're saying is listen to yourself first. Yeah. Before you before you even go and try to listen to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's really important. That that really it's is. Really and and particularly well, if you're upset, right? And right and you're then you're definitely not going to be thinking clearly about it. Right. And be careful going to your best friends. Because when you go to your best friend and say, this person over here is just being ridiculous, blah, 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 and you tell the whole story, your friend will say, oh, yes, you're right. Yes. I mean, what, yeah. They're your friend. What else are they going to say? They're going to reinforce it. And then you just make that story even stronger. You need to go to right. somebody who's an ally, but who may have a different point of view. And you need to say, here's what I'm seeing. I need to hear alternative ideas. It's not that we have an answer, but there's those alternatives that create the openness. So you had this conversation with yourself, and now you're going to go and have the conversation with the, some with somebody, and you've you figured out already, hopefully, what you would like them to do differently instead of asking, you know, going and saying, "I don't want you to be this way anymore," which is, right. which is, um, a really critical difference. How do you start the conversation then? Well, I happen to believe that, especially when there's been tension between two people, that starting with perspective taking is absolutely gold dust. So I won't say every single conversation starts that way, but I'd think that way, start thinking that way. And I would come to you, Bella, and say, look, Bella, I know we've had a disagreement about this particular issue, but I need to make sure I understand your point of view in a better way. And I'm coming with a very open mindset. And I'm coming to just listen and synthesize and understand what you are really seeing, even if I think that is totally wrong. Mm. If I don't understand your point of view, then there is no meeting of the minds. And what will happen is if you, Bella, feel really listened to by me and understood by me, your emotional angst is just going to calm right down. You just sort of settle down. And then you might be in a place to actually hear for the first time my perspective. But you always start, if I'm initiating, I want to start with understanding the other person's real perspective. And it is listen, and it's listen without agenda. And sometimes the best outcome of that conversation is saying, thank you. I need to digest this. Mm, Let's right. talk. So you're, you're not more. going to, because you may be internally reacting to what they've said, and that wouldn't be a good a good time to continue the conversation. Right. Most of us listen to find the piece of evidence that confirms what we already thought. And then yeah. we jump on that one and never hear the rest of it. So this is genuinely hear what you think in a way that leaves you feeling hurt. Because that's the only way I'm going to get you to a state where you might be willing to consider a compromise. And then and then I think what you said earlier, does that also apply then if you once you've heard the story from somebody, their perspective? on it which may be colored by their own stories and their own ideas about what you've done right some of which may may be a surprise to you would and you if you do go away digest it would it then be helpful to then to check it out with that ally as opposed to your best friend and and, yeah and yeah yeah if you i mean it's always a good idea to check out with an ally and say here's what i heard you know, does that sound right? And here's what I think we could do. And do you agree? And would that work? And so on. But ultimately, I need to come back to you, Bella. And I need to say, okay, I heard you. And then summarize what I heard was the synthesis. Mm -hmm. Would it work for you if I did the following? So I'm going to make an offer of something I can do 
and most people will reciprocate with a counteroffer. And mm. they will say, okay, if you can do that, Wanda, then I'm willing to do this other thing. Would that help you? And when we're in that state, we're in a state of moving progress forward. Now we're working together. Now it. Now we can get somewhere. If it's a good faith negotiation, right? So, so and, and you went into it. We went into this having already thought through what is the thing we that we really want, what it's right. that we want to right. happen, as opposed right. to going into it like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to tell them what I well, think of whatever the heck often, it is they're doing. We often dig trenches and then we expect the other person to make the first move. Like, I'm not moving. You make the first move. Mm. You're the problem. And I'm going to tell you, it's do that's causing the problem. So you always have a move. It may be a small one, but you always have a move. Figure out what that move could be. Get some possibilities and choose wisely. And it's see what happens. See what result you get out of it. Look, one of the problems I hear all the time is I don't like this person that I'm working with. Mm. I don't think they're smart enough. They're not fast enough. They're not whatever enough. And maybe all of those are true. But I promise you, if I'm working with somebody and I'm thinking in my head, they're not good enough, it's coming out in my body language communication with them. And they're feeling negative about me. Whether they understand what I'm feeling, why I'm feeling doesn't matter. They're going to feel bad about it. That means we're not hearing each other from that moment forward. So a simple trick is to find one thing you can respect about that other person and show it. It just takes one thing. And all that does is lighten the interactions. And suddenly, now we can talk in a more effective way. It's amazing. One thing that you respect. Somebody think respects that person for something or they wouldn't be for there. For something. Everybody's, everybody's somebody, someone's favorite child or... Something. Yeah. They're a great, they're a great sports fan. Whatever, whatever it is. There's... Yeah. There's, there's something and and that's so key right and lean we talk about this concept of respect for people which is the idea that all human beings are amazing and marvelous and creative and are capable of growth and it's a really lovely idea to ascribe to but when you're faced with actual human beings <laughs> sometimes it's very difficult right yeah, right indeed but um, indeed. but Maybe if my respect for people starts with, I'm just going to find one, you know, one thing. Mm -hmm. They show up to work on time every day or, you know. Mm -hmm. They're they really they good with politics. They're better with yeah. politics than I am. Um, yeah. They're always thinking how to carefully say something in a way that I don't always think. I mean, th there's always something there if you think about it. It only takes one thing. So then once, the, once you you've had this negotiation and you are hopefully moving towards an outcome that is that is helpful for both people to and, to, and again to accomplish you know some important goal for the organization right. with this you know right we're, we're moving towards doing something that we're supposed to be doing for for our for our organization how do you continue the relationship after that is there is there a a way to do that? You need to check in. So we agreed we'd do action X, I do one and you do something else. We need to check in in a month and say, hey, look, we agreed to this. Is that working for you? Is it working for me? Do we need to do something else? Do we need to add? Do we need to shift? Do we need to change? What else would make it easier for you to do your job? What else could I do that would help you? 
be more powerful. That is a lovely way of just checking in. And along the way, we need to build some constructive experiences. We need to have some successes together. Mm -hmm. Because if we're not, then, then we got a different problem. We got to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, why are we not having successes here? What do we need to fix? And you think about this not as a one and done. You think about this as an evolution. It is a journey. We're going to move from one state slowly, step by step by step, to a better state. May ne- the person may never be my best friend. I may never right. want to invite them to a dinner party at my home. I may never want to go for a long weekend with them. That's fine. All I need you don't to have do to. <laughs> is to work with them. We need to have effective conversations to get to solutions that, we're, that are going to work for both of us. That's, that's really marvelous. Wanda, tell us about your book. <laughs> the book was written so you can't know it all. So the notion that in spite of being an expert and an economy driven by expertise, we are in an information age, knowledge yeah. economy, that you can't know everything that it takes to be successful in a modern organization. It's too complex and increasing by the day. So accepting that you can't know it all, you can't learn it all, and therefore you can't do it all is really premise to having impact in an organization. Now, that means doesn't mean you don't know anything. Of course you do. But it is really how do you understand this contrast between leading when you do know and leading when you don't know. And leading for me is not necessarily being the manager. It can be right. in leading as in influencing. So when I do know and when I don't know and how do I move between those two worlds. And so we talk about the three fundamental principles that you have to start with. Number one is how am I adding value when I don't have the answer, when I don't know? What's my value add? And then two, what's my work? What's the work I'm doing and how do I know everybody else is doing a good job? And then number three, what's the nature of my conversations, my relationships now, given that they're not about content? And so all these tools that we've just been talking about conversations come in that last bucket. But if you weren't clear about how you're adding value and what your work is, then you can't get to the bottom half. You keep going around in circles. And the book is filled with the contrast between the two and exercises to help you see the move from one to the other. And where is the book available? Any place you would buy a book in the modern world. So all the obvious places. Okay. Um, I think if you go to our website, leadership-forum.com, we've got a link there that takes you to all the appropriate um, providers of books, eBooks, audiobook, it's all all available. And that'll be in the show notes for folks who, who um, so you can go and uh, check out Wanda's website and check out the book um, and learn more about, about leading, leading in places where you're not comfortable to lead. That's right. That's right. That is what it is about. And still getting the best of those resources that are coming together with you. So collectively, you might actually know most of it, if not all of it, collectively not individual collectively but not but and it's okay we're, we're not we're all not supposed to know everything individually right um, wow. wow and you have a podcast as well tell us about your podcast i do the podcast is called out of the comfort zone so it's people talking about skills techniques tactic experiences of moving out of their comfort zone and how do they survive so we talk about things like confidence And we talk about things like networking and visibility. I just did an episode with Lisa Bragg on braggitude. How do you brag appropriately and not feel icky about it? 
um, <laughs> and why that's important. Um, so we do all those kind of skill sets that I think it takes to survive and thrive when you're out of the comfort zone. Which, which for most of us is a lot of the time, right? Yes. Yes. When I'm trying to do something I haven't yet mastered, I'm going to be out of my comfort zone. And that's the principle. But that's the learning zone as well. That's where we have to go there in order to learn. And it's just so critical to, to get, to get there and be comfortable and be able to, you know, not just survive, but thrive, you know, have that. That'd be the place, get comfortable being uncomfortable. That's right. Our tagline for the podcast is there's no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. So it's that (laughs) you're exactly right. If I'm growing, there's going to be some discomfort and that's where learning happens. Yeah. Wanda, what would be your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? Okay. Can I give two? Yes, yeah, go, go for it. Go very for it. specific pieces of advice. One is I watch a lot of young people. I watch a lot of people for that matter, mm-hmm. think that they need to find the perfect job and to land in that perfect job. And then everything else will just automatically happen exactly on course as it should happen. And I just got to tell you, careers are not made that way today. It is not a singular journey. It's much more like climbing a tree, scrambling through a tree where the next step is never obvious. Um, You may get out on a branch and have to scramble back down. You may decide you like that branch and want to hang out for a while. The seat you may want, somebody else may be sitting on. And people from all over the tree can give you advice about what might be a plausible next move. And so we've just got to get rid of this notion that there's a single ladder. I get on the ladder and I start climbing and everything will happen. It doesn't. And then, so that's my one major piece of advice. I think if I'm advised, well, I do say this all the time for people starting in their career, find the space, meaning the industry or the technology or the discipline that you love, that you're excited Mm. by and good at and stick with it because then all sorts of opportunities will emerge from that that you never even knew was possible. But if you're in that space, then you begin to see all sorts of things. Um, so, and that doesn't mean stick in a functional line, unless that's what you want, but let's say, you know, I really love the lean methodology or agile methodology, then great, become an expert in agile and then become an expert in the application of agile and then become an expert in how this company is doing agile. And you'll find that as you get that experience, you get to know where the opportunities are in competitors and clients and all sorts of places more opens up. So that was my main piece of advice. My second piece of advice to people starting out and to everybody else is that there are a few places in careers where perfection is useful. Mm. Perfection in school, the more perfect you are in school, the better your grade, the better your job opportunities, the happier everybody is, parents and schools and everybody. So school teaches you to be perfect. Careers are not built on the back of perfection. They're built on the back of figuring out what is good enough because it's an efficient use of time and resources. Now, some things have to be perfect. Like I recommend your numbers are perfect, but not everything is. And it's getting learning to strike that balance between what is really good and um, what's okay for now. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's such an important piece of advice. I mean, all of your advice is important, but but the, I see this all the time with people in their first job and they they 
come and they do their first project and they make it perfect. And they're kind of expecting that, A. Eh? And we're like, oh, that's great. Next. <laughs> Here's the next one. Next. You know, let, let's keep moving and, and be faster next time. So, um, yeah, and it, it is it's such a different culture just for people to to get used to. You're not going to get A's, but you're going to get other satisfaction. So, right. Right. You have to find your own satisfaction. If you're not getting your yes. own satisfaction, you're going to be pretty uh, frustrated by your career. Which is why your first piece of advice is, is terrific. Is, is is you know find the thing that that you know that excites you. It, it may not excite you every day, but but you're going to find some. You know there will be something all the time. That, right. That will be, and you'll build that expertise. Wow, Wanda Wallace, it's been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for traveling with me to the edges of Lean. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation, Bella. Well done. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Wanda Wallace for being my guest at the Edges of Lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? We would love to hear from you. Find Wanda at leadership-forum.com and check out her podcast, Out of the Comfort Zone. Her book is You Can't Know It All, Leading in the Age of Deep Expertise. You can find her on LinkedIn as well. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com where you will find lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcasting. This is a Lean for Humans production.